Hi, everybody. This is Randy Beamer from News 4 San Antonio. You're listening to the San Antonio's Voice podcast. Thank you very much for doing that. Today, an interesting guy, Dan Rouvier, who is the Energy Secretary of the U.S. right now, replaced uh, Rick Perry coming to Texas for a number of reasons we're going to get into. And joining us right now, our assignment editor, Sal Del Cid. Sal? Pretty good get, Randy. You got a cabinet member to President Trump, so uh, good going. Um, but yeah, you guys had a pretty good, int- uh, pretty good conversation. Uh, you, of course, you talked about Texas oil, which is always a big thing around here. Uh, San Antonio's role in the cybersecurity scene. And uh, personally, he's got nine kids that he's homeschooled, and he told you the secret to homeschooling, which a lot of people might appreciate. Right yeah. now, a lot of kids are learning from home. Right, and he is from San Antonio, been here for decades, worked at USAA for decades, um, and, and so this is his first big trip to Texas since COVID, and he talks about uh, some of the changes that COVID has brought to the Department of Energy as well as to the energy business. One of the things he's here for is to talk to producers. I talk with people even at Randolph about, or at Lackland about some of the uh, concerns that they have right now uh, in dealing with uh, energy and the power grid. Now, I started out by asking him about some recent controversies over pipelines, the Dakota Access Pipeline. They just had a court ruling that said they need to go ahead and drain it and do some testing on it. So that's holding up that pipeline. And then the Atlantic Pipeline on the East Coast, that had been in the works for years, $8 billion worth, and it had been held up by various challenges. And the developers of that one just pulled out um, and decided that wasn't worth it for their shareholders. And, of course, then we got into here in the Hill Country right now. They're building the Kinder Morgan Natural Gas Pipeline, and that um, is being challenged by environmentalists who are right now about to drill under the Pertinalis. And so I asked him, pressed him right away about why during COVID especially is the U.S. not moving more toward renewable energy, which is being you know, pushed hard by a lot of people. He had an interview that morning uh, with a Paris summit, a virtual Paris summit about that. Um, and so coming right out of that, I asked him in this, uh, I think, pretty good interview about why the U.S. US is not moving more toward renewables, and uh, here is what he had to say about that. Again, this is Dan Brugier of the U.S. Department of Energy. What do you say? Well, I think we need all of it. So it's very important for the nation to have various forms of energy. So as I mentioned to the folks that we were just with in Paris, Right now, there's no nation on Earth that can survive or keep its electricity grid running on just renewable power. It's physically impossible. We don't have the technologies available. It's a great intermittent source of electricity here in the United States and other other countries around the world. But it completely relies upon the provision of baseload electricity to keep it going and keep our grid energized in those periods of time in which you don't have wind or you don't have solar. So it's very important that we have all of these types of fuels. And today, most of our electricity generation in the United States is coming from that form of baseload power. So it's nuclear energy. It's natural gas. In some cases, it's coal in certain parts of the, of the, of the regions in, in the United States. We have to have all of it in order for us to have security on the grid. And as I pointed out to several other folks today, energy security here in the United States and around the world means national security as well. So we have to develop all of this infrastructure. The other point that I would make is that, you know, with regard to pipelines in particular, 
The United States is now the largest, the world's largest producer of both oil and gas. So we're larger than Saudi Arabia. We're larger than Russia in terms of production. Our challenge today in America is actually getting the product to market. So you have to get it to the export markets in order for us to have that product go around the world. And in the case of natural gas, it means that many developing countries are going to move from carbon-intensive uh, fuel sources like coal to cleaner, much cleaner natural gas. That's a good thing for the environment. I would think that all environmentalists should promote that type of transition, should also promote the transition in certain cases to nuclear energy, which is zero emissions. Now, here, a lot of people were stunned when the price of oil went so low that the futures went negative and right. didn't really understand how that worked, but there was no place to store it. Right. Where are we now in terms of the price of oil because so many people depend on it? And, yeah. and how is the Eagle Ford doing yeah. compared to what we've seen, and, right. and where do you see its future? Well, I, it, I think it has a bright future. And I think, we're, you know, as you mentioned, we had negative pricing in the oil markets. No one thought that that was possible. Uh, we learned very quickly that it, in fact, is. Many of those contracts, though, were, in fact, just paper trades between traders on Wall Street. Some folks made the wrong bet, and they got caught at the end of the contract period, and they were in the wrong position at the wrong time. That drove the price into negative territory. What we're seeing, however, is a return of the production of both oil and gas. Not only here in Texas, Eagle Ford Shale, uh, out in the Permian Basin as well, we're seeing that gradual, uh, gradual return to production, not only because of the pricing, which is now somewhere in the $40 range, but we're starting to see it as a result of the demand curve coming back. As we move beyond this COVID pandemic and the economy begins to return, you're going to continue to see increased production here in the United States. You're going on this Texas trip to the uh, Petroleum Reserve, the one of them over yes. near Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, people probably didn't know until maybe March, or some people, that the U.S. has that. And, you know, the president said he wanted to buy oil, and then that was uh, the, the Congress couldn't give that money. Tell us where we are in that process. And you did buy buy some. We're we able did. to buy some. Yeah, we did. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve is a national asset that we have both here in Texas and in Louisiana as well. Two sites in Texas, two sites in Louisiana. Its purpose, it was set up back in the late 70s uh, as, a, as a result of the oil embargoes that were placed uh, on, the, on the Middle Eastern countries against the United States. So the president at that time, the government at that time, determined that we needed to have uh, this reserve in place and save some oil for perhaps a rainy day. And, and that's its purpose. So it's a, very, it's a very important strategic national asset. But we wanted to buy that oil when it was so low. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much were you able to buy, and how much did that really get to help any producers who well, needed to offload that, what they had? So we mentioned earlier, when the production began to, uh, to slow down, what happened was the demand curve moved faster than the supply curve. So the, you know, the economies closed down very appropriately so, refined products demand went down. Production continued for some time, and that created a different problem. Where do you put it? Once it starts coming out of the ground, you have to put it somewhere. So storage became an acute issue. What we did was we opened up the petroleum reserve and allowed producers to store their oil there. And what we did was we charged them rent in order to put it into the... We leased it. We leased the space. So it was a very uh, unique opportunity for the U.S. government. It's great for the taxpayers. We picked up about 23 million barrels of oil that we have put into the SPRO as we refer to it, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So it's been, it's been a fantastic opportunity for both producers and for the taxpayers as well. What do you know about where they are in the process of the Kinder Morgan pipeline up in the Hill Country? You know, that's a big, big issue, especially north of us in Austin right sure. now. Perdinalis River, they're about to, to uh, tunnel under that. Yeah. Is there a possibility that that could be 
delayed, postponed, canceled, however you put it? Where do you see the end of that process? How far away are we from seeing that yeah. open? Well, it's always a possibility that it can be delayed. It's one of the things we're looking at from a federal government standpoint. We're looking to create regulatory certainty. What we've seen across the country, not only with that pipeline, but with the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, other important infrastructure projects around the country, is that we've seen activists come together and work very aggressively using the court system, using the regulatory process to slow these projects down sometimes to the point where investors back away. And, uh, you know, companies will just determine that, hey, this is no longer economically viable for us. And they have a fiduciary responsibility to their investors and to their shareholders to make those kinds of tough decisions. And that's what we saw with the Atlantic Coast Pipeline uh, over on the East Coast. It's very important that we create processes that allow the public to see what is the project that's being built? What will be the impact on the community? What will be the impact of their localized you know, market situation? But it's also important that we not allow you know, 5, 6, 10, 12, 25 bites at the apple in order simply to deny these types of projects to be built. In that vein, what do you tell people who say, I don't want it going there, it shouldn't have gone there, uh, it's a danger to the environment, to the aquifer? What, what's your, the defense of that? What do you say? Well, you, you, you rely on scientific data. It's, it's very appropriate during the regulatory process to have it be open and transparent, allow everyone to comment, allow science to be uh, leading part of the process, and, and have reasonable, rational decisions be made at the end of the process. What is not reasonable and what is not rational is to allow uh, an activist group to come in and to use the court system repeatedly simply to slow the project down. If there is an environmental concern, then it should be raised throughout the regulatory process. But we should rely on the scientific data, not the emotion, to determine the ultimate outcome. Chesapeake Energy, one of the you know pioneers uh, in fracking in this area, sure. just filed for bankruptcy. I know you're hearing from a lot of producers what they need. What are you hearing from them? And, and what do you tell people who are so dependent on oil here in this area? Yeah, I've not talked to Chesapeake Energy about their uh, financial situation. I, I'm aware of it, obviously, from the, the public sources but I've not talked to them directly about their particular situation. Oil and gas production here in the United States has a very bright future, uh, not only for the provision of you know, refined products like diesel and jet fuel and gasoline, but also for the petrochemical industry. We're seeing an explosion of uh, facilities being built, part, you know, primarily in the eastern part of the United States, to uh, utilize the feedstocks that are coming from places like Texas and North Dakota. Uh, plastics are such a big part of our lives. Practically everything that we use has some plastic in it. So this type of industry is very, very important, and it's going to continue uh, for the foreseeable future. You talked with people from Valero here yesterday. I uh, when we first saw the effects of COVID on the supply or mm -hmm. demand here and the prices just dropped, uh, people wondered, what's going to happen to companies like Valero? Is there a future as much as we, you know, it, what's... You know, the break-even point for oil is a big, is a big headline sure. in, in San Antonio. What do you tell them about the future of a Valero if they see Chesapeake go under? Mm -hmm. I think it's very bright. I mean, Valero is a very uh, diverse company. They make, you know, an, an enormous amount of products. They have uh, facilities all across the world. That we were just talking yesterday about some of the facilities that they have in the U.K. Uh, it's very diverse. It's very financially stable. I don't see any any issues whatsoever uh, with that particular company. The products that they uh, produce here in the United States and around the world um, will be part of our economy 
uh, for generations to come. There's just no question about that. Uh, what was I, I was particularly impressed by the diversity of their of their portfolio. So they produce not only jet fuel and diesel and everything else, but they're also really big into biofuels. So we're seeing more and more of that come onto the market as well. Where do you see the price of oil going? Where do what, I see the price of oil? Yeah, where, what is it? Uh, you know, what did it drop to? And now, you know, people say break even at forty is like, ah, oh, I don't know if that can make that. Are you hearing that from people? And yeah, we do. Uh, we, we hear it. You know, and it, it depends on the company itself and the financial structure. So, you know, as oil prices started to increase, you know, fifty-five, sixty, sometimes seventy, eighty dollars a barrel, we saw a lot of people come into this marketplace who, in all candor, were probably not supposed to be in the business in the first place. Uh, some of them are highly leveraged. Some of them borrowed way too much money. And uh, as a result, they're going to feel some pain at $40. There's no question about that. But there are many producers, in fact, the majority of producers, who can do quite well at $40, $45, $50 a barrel. Uh, and if it's higher, well, then great. That's great for consumers as well. It's a good price point for the American producer as well as the American consumer. Uh, but at $40, I, I don't see a lot of people exiting the business here in the United States. Do you States. see it dropping further than that? It really depends. It really depends on what we do you know, post-pandemic. Uh, I think if the economy continues to grow at the pace it, 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 as it's growing now, I just saw the unemployment numbers come out this morning. It looks like there are fewer new claims for unemployment benefits here in America. As the economy continues to grow, that demand curve continues to rise, you're going to see the price of oil stay right with it. How about the rig count? That's another headline a lot of people pay attention to here in South Texas. And, sure. you know, we, I've lived here since the 80s. We've had the booms, the busts, sure. whatever. Uh, what do you see in terms of the drilling in the future mm-hmm. in this area and across Texas? Well, I, I think it's going to continue to increase. I think one of the beautiful things about this industry is that it's become so innovative over the last three or four or five decades. You know, we all know the stories about George Mitchell and horizontal drilling and fracking and those types of technologies. What they've done is not only increase the production of oil and gas here in the United States, they've allowed us to be much more efficient. So you can see the rig counts go up and down in ways you couldn't 40 years ago. So they can come into the business very fast and they can get out of the business very fast. And that's something that's uh, new, if you will, to this particular industry. So I think they're much more able to accommodate the changes in demand for product than they were four or five decades ago. You mentioned horizontal drilling. Uh, There's some people that are talking about geothermal because you can use the same kind of drilling technology. Some people don't know what that is. What do you tell them about where where we are in geothermal and what what do you look at down the road? How much could that be of our energy sources? Well, it it depends on on the the region of the country. So it's much more efficient, it's much more effective in certain parts of the country. If you happen to be in the West Coast, if you're in Yellowstone National Park, for instance, or out west, geothermal is a great option. Uh, It's very uh, inexpensive, uh, it's, it's, it's reliable, and, uh, you know, it's, it's very useful in that regard. If you're down where I grew up in Louisiana, it's a little bit less uh, productive or efficient, if you will. Uh, but it's a fantastic resource that we have here in the United States, and I think it, it, it has to be part of our portfolio. We mentioned earlier, and it's very important for the United States to develop every resource, all types of energy, because it provides consumers with choices. And when you have choice in the marketplace, it typically means you have better pricing because of the competition that that brings with it. I think the last question that you were asked at this, uh, the summit that you did virtually here today was about what's in the future. Yeah. And... Uh, People might see that soundbite and say, well, the first thing you said was, uh, or talked about was nuclear and then petrochemical, and mm-hmm. people who are against nuclear are a little leery about that and petrochemical. I'd go, wait, 
I thought we were moving toward wind. I thought we were moving toward solar, which you also mentioned. Yeah, no, sure. Again, it's all of the above. We have to do all of them. So, yes, nuclear technologies are, are going to be a focal point of this administration and our department uh, because it is zero emissions uh, technology. And we have, to, we have to acknowledge that that's part of, if we're going to meet any climate goal whatsoever, it's very important that we have nuclear energy p- be part of the mix because, as I mentioned to the group, Renewable power depends upon baseload power. Uh, The wind doesn't blow all the time. The sun doesn't shine all the time. And we do not have the battery technologies in place today, available today, to offset the intermittency of these renewable technologies. So they're backed up by baseload power, which is provided in most cases by natural gas, nuclear, and coal, fossil fuels. We're doing some uh, research here at Southwest Research Institute Mm -hmm. about batteries and things like that for solar, for wind. How far away is that from being produced at scale? And is that something you see 10 years, 20 years? Is it going to be eclipsed by other power by then? It could be. It's a, it's a little difficult to tell. These are, are very uh, technical areas. Uh, we have uh, 17 national laboratories. Uh, probably 40% of the workforce at the U.S. Department of Energy holds a Ph.D. in some technical field. Uh, they're working on this day and night. We announced uh, just recently a grand challenge uh, for battery storage. What we're trying to develop is grid-scale battery storage. You know, we understand how lithium-ion works in your iPhone. We understand how, you know, these technologies can be applied to things like electric vehicles. We're not yet at the point with lithium, and we're not sure we can get there with lithium to provide larger grid-scale type battery storage. So we're looking at new things. We're looking at some of the rare earth elements that potentially can be drawn from coal or other uh, resources that we have here in the United States. Uh, it's a very difficult uh, prediction to make, but my, my guess is that within my lifetime, we will see this technology on the marketplace. Is the U.S. looking at expanding its, uh, say, petroleum uh, reserves? Is that something you need to do, or are we, are we okay at that right now? I mean, yeah. some people see this prolonged COVID drought, you know, really hurting oil prices. Sure. Well, we, we, we have the capacity to store approximately 715 million barrels of oil. Uh, for the moment, that seems to be sufficient. And, uh, you know, if there are opportunities to expand it, I, I want to look at that. I don't want to miss opportunities that might be available to us. But at the moment, what we have available to us in the reserve is, is sufficient. Uh, wind energy is somewhat, you know, controversial. People think it's really clean, but a lot of people are concerned about killing birds. Sure. And uh, in, in some parts of West Texas, you can go by a couple of different forms of energy that are very, you know, you see an oil derrick, you see a wind turbine. Sure. Um, and there's a couple of very controversial projects in Texas. Where do you see wind uh, in the future? How much is that? And I know the president's not a big fan of wind. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, wind, wind is not without its environmental consequences. So I think it's important for us to acknowledge that and to recognize that. Uh, however, you know, I think wind energy does have a future here in the United States. Perhaps it's offshore. And we're seeing more and more projects, particularly in the Northeast, somewhat in California, uh, be, be uh, promoted. And we think that's important to do. Uh, and, and it really depends upon the local community. So, you know, the challenge for wind energy is not unlike what we see in the pipeline industry. Uh, they're beginning to have their own uh, not-in-my-backyard syndrome. Folks are somewhat concerned about having a windmill on their property or having a windmill uh, destroy what they, you know, feel is a very uh, pristine landscape. So we're seeing some permitting challenges there as well, but I do think that wind energy is going to continue to progress here in the United States. Back to oil, is the price war over between Saudi Arabia and Russia? Are we 
you know, could we see that again, and could that affect the price of oil? Yeah, no, certainly we can. OPEC is uh, a bit unpredictable these days. It doesn't have quite the uh, the power, if you will, uh, over the U.S. economy that it used to have back in the 70s and perhaps early 80s. Uh, but nonetheless, it has the ability to to affect world markets, as we saw just three or four months ago. Uh, OPEC is coming up to another important meeting. I suspect that they're going to uh, meet very shortly and agree to whatever production numbers are appropriate for that cartel. Uh, we will stay engaged and we will watch this conversation occur. Uh, we do so under the construct of the G20, which is the appropriate tool for the United States to engage in these conversations with. We're not a member of OPEC. We're not going to become part of a cartel for the production of oil. Um, but we think that you know we think that they have resolved most of their differences. And again, as these economies, not only here in the United States but around the world, begin to reopen, uh, we're going to see these issues. Uh, resolve themselves very quickly. Again, a couple of last quick questions. So Mexico sure. yesterday, the president of Mexico uh, sure. celebrating the, the new uh, trade agreement. Uh-huh. Uh, people don't realize here in Texas just how closely tied we are and could be to Mexico in terms of energy both ways. Where, what is this going to mean to places like Texas? What, what is that new energy agreement going to mean yeah. in terms of energy that we can do that we couldn't do before? Yeah. Well, I think this, uh, the new USMCA is just a fantastic opportunity for our two countries uh, to work even more collaboratively than we have in the past. Uh, Mexico is one of our largest trading partners, and energy is a, a huge component of it. Uh, much of the oil that comes in from Mexico goes to refineries right here in Texas and sent back as gasoline or refined products. That's an important trade component to our, our trade deficit, uh, to our trade balance. It's important to uh, not only the Texas economy, but the entire United States economy. So we want to see that continue. What we've done in this agreement is to equalize some of the environmental concerns that both countries have raised. We've also equalized some of the tariff concerns that both countries have raised. But we've also created some new opportunities as well. You know, pipeline uh, you know, development, both here in Texas and in Mexico, can allow U.S. natural gas to be exported from the western part of our of our country as well as from the western part of Mexico. If we can work together on those types of projects, it creates an enormous economic export opportunity for U.S. natural gas. R&D right now, there was a lot of talk a few months ago about where you should or where the U.S. long term should be focusing the Energy Department's R&D money. How do you tell people that pie is split up right now? Where do you want to, where do you want to see more of it? Well, at the U.S. Department of Energy, we spend billions of dollars on research every single year, and it's spread across a pretty wide portfolio. Uh, so everything from supercomputing, uh, which was very important in this pandemic, this COVID pandemic, uh, not many people know that we have two of the fastest supercomputers in the world at the U.S. Department of Energy at our Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Knoxville, Tennessee. We want to see continued research and development being done on things like artificial intelligence, uh, the development of algorithms that were very, very important in helping us find the right research literature that led the CDC and others to the right answers for COVID, for for this current pandemic. We also want to see the development of new technologies, as I mentioned to the IEA this morning. With regard to nuclear power in particular, we're developing new fuels that are accident tolerant, they're walk away safe, they can walk away from a nuclear reactor that is shut down. There is no Chernobyl. That can't happen with some of these new fuels. You've talked about cyber 
storms, I think this is a phrase, affecting mm -hmm. the energy, energy yeah. grid. People might wonder what the heck that is. How big a concern is that hacking of, yeah. of uh, the electric grid or the power grid? Or yeah, it's an enormous concern. Cybersecurity activities in increased uh, exponentially over the course of the last five years. We now have nation states who are actively engaged in attempting to hack our grid, to manipulate our grid in certain cases. It's a very important part of their national security doctrine uh, to look at this type of technology. We work closely with the utility industry, the CEOs across the country to protect them. We see things in the Intel space. We work closely with the CIA, the NSA, others. Uh, when we see Intel that's important for these utilities, we share it with them very quickly. We also share with them the R&D work that we're doing inside of the department. Things like the development of, our, we mentioned artificial intelligence. We can now use artificial intelligence to protect our utility grid from cybersecurity. It's a newer development over the last two to three years. We want to con continue to see that activity progress. How much of that is done in San Antonio? We have a huge cybersecurity industry here, our, and people go, cybersecurity, okay, we're going to get some of that money. Yeah. Uh, how much uh, do firms here more focused on defense, how much are they yeah. uh, involved with that? Well, the 16th Wing, you know, the, the Air Force Cyber Command is actually headquartered right here in San Antonio, and I had an opportunity to visit with them yesterday and get an update on some of the work that they're doing. I think uh, what they are doing in particular is important to the energy industry uh, here in the United States. And the work that they are doing will eventually find its way not only into the energy business, but into the telecommunications industry, uh, other forms of industry as well. So there's a huge economic opportunity for San Antonio as well as for, for Texas. And the Department of Energy had to close buildings and things like that and send yeah. people home. A lot of people working from home right now? Yeah, we have about 60% of our workforce um, approximately that are working from home. Uh, we're in a maximum telework environment. Some of the things we do at the department uh, simply are, are not compatible with telework. Uh, many people don't know that uh, we actually manufacture the nuclear warheads that we lease to the Department of Defense. We have to deliver those to the Navy. We have to deliver those to the Air Force. Very hard to do that over a telephone line. Biggest challenge right now for you personally as well as professionally, yeah. if you had to boil it down for people, what, what's the toughest part of your job today? Toughest part of my job is dealing with national security issues around the world. We have rogue, we have rogue nations who want to develop nuclear warheads. Uh, we're very engaged in that debate as a technical expert on all things nuclear, and in particular nuclear warheads. Um, it's very important that we stay on top of these issues, that we look at countries like DPRK, North Korea, that we look at countries like Iran, and we must take every step possible to deny countries like Durant, Iran uh, access to a nuclear warhead. People might wonder, that's the Department of Defense, that's not energy. How, how is that even part of your purview? Well, it's part of our purview because our, our legacy goes all the way back to what was then known as the Atomic Energy Commission, which was the commission that developed the nuclear warheads that were used in World War II. Fat Man and Little Boy were developed by the predecessor agency to the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, our research, our development, our technicians, our scientists within our department are the world leaders on the development of these types of technologies. And uh, it, it also stems from a longstanding uh, tenet uh, in national security policy, that you don't have the warheads, uh, nuclear warheads in particular, must remain under civilian control. You typically don't put control of the warhead with the people who can actually pull the trigger. Finally, you're back in Texas. I am. People might not realize you're back home in San Antonio <laughs> because you worked at USAA for a long time. I did. From Louisiana, uh, Cajun. <laughs> I guess anybody from there is, you could call Cajun. Yeah. Uh, 
what's in your future? And people might not realize that you were here. Yeah. How do you get from USAA to the Department of Energy? <laughs> well, this is my uh, second or third tour at the U.S. Department of Energy, depending on how you want to count it. I was an assistant secretary back in the first part of the, the George Bush administration, President Bush at the time. And um, I worked on in Capitol Hill for a long time as well. But San Antonio has always been home. My wife was trained as an Army nurse. We, we were both in, in the Army. Uh, she was trained right here at Fort Sam Houston, so we came here 30 years ago. Uh, I did join USAA as an executive in 2006. I was honored to be a part of that organization and be a part of this community. And, uh, you know, three of my nine kids were born right here in San Antonio, so it is our second home. Nine kids. I was reading, you homeschooled nine kids? Mm-hmm. How does that work? <laughs> I can't imagine. Well, the Army trained my wife really well. Uh, they trained me well as well, but she is a very organized person, and she leads that effort day in and day out. How old are the kids? My oldest is 28. My youngest is 7. 7? That's correct. And now they're in Washington, though. You can't homeschool. Yeah. Are you homeschooling in Washington? Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. We live, uh, we live just out of Washington, D.C. in Maryland. We have a small farm there, and uh, all of our kids are homeschooled on the farm. How about COVID? How are you dealing with that, both yeah. personally and at, at the department? You have nine yeah. kids. How do you... How do you keep all of them in the same area with, with masks, without masks? Is that, is that one huge? You have a family gathering. That's more than 10. That's not allowed. <laughs> I guess it depends uh, where you are. But, yeah, no, it's, it's been great. We have, a, we have a small farm that we run in Maryland, and the kids have been uh, wonderful. We've been completely unaffected by COVID. Knock on wood. Thank God we are, uh, we're completely safe and sound. So it's not been an issue for us. Well, Mr. Secretary, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. And I guess welcome back to San Antonio. Thank you very much. 